0: My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the chief executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Two men are walking down the road. One says to the other, I wish I knew where I was going to die. The other says, well, why do you want to know that? Well, the first replies, if I did... I wouldn't go there. It's a daft joke, I know, but it does perhaps capture something, the irrationality, the unpreparedness with which many of us think about death. This is perhaps because we're frightened not only of our mortality, but of the process of dying. As Woody Allen once quipped, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But could we reduce that fear? Could we face death more squarely as individuals and as a society if we knew, and if our loved ones knew, we'd have more control at the end of our lives? This is one of many arguments I'm sure we'll hear over the next few minutes from Prue Leith, who, as well as being a chef, a broadcaster, a businesswoman, a novelist, and a former chair of the RSA, has been for a long time a prominent campaigner for assisted dying. And Sarah Wooden, Chief Executive of Dignity and Dying and co-author of a powerful new book, Last Rights, And as you might guess, rights in this case is spelt R-I-G-H-T-S. So welcome both. How are you, Prue?
1: I'm absolutely fine. As I'm 80, I get to think about dying more and more.
0: <laughs> Every time I hear from you or see you, I don't get the sense that you're approaching any kind of end. Sarah, how are you?
2: I'm good and glad to be here. Thanks, Matthew.
0: Great. Well, look, the question I'll ask you both is, why has this become a big issue for you? So, Sarah, let me start with you. I mean, you're Chief Executive for Dignity and Dying, so that partly explains why you've written this book. But why is this an issue that has engaged you and that you've chosen to dedicate your working life to?
2: I have dedicated my working life to personal autonomy in a way, Matthew. So I led campaigns on reproductive choice and gender equality at the Family Planning Association, the Equal Opportunities Commission. And I was a founding trustee of abortion rights, which is the descendant of the Abortion Law Reform Association. And that was that campaign that, of course, achieved law change on decriminalising abortion in 1967, working with David Steele and the Home Secretary Roy Jenkins. So I'd say I'm an advocate of personal autonomy, but I'm no anarchist. There has to be a balance between individuals' rights and the protections for society. But as the evidence shows, having the choice of assisted dying protects and enhances life for society as well as the individual.
0: We'll get into those arguments in a moment. But Prue, tell me why you have been such an outspoken figure in this debate as well.
2: Well, I've always
1: been in favor of euthanasia, as it used to be called. But I really came strongly into helping Sarah with her campaigning when I saw my brother dying, and he had bone cancer. And bone cancer is an extraordinarily painful disease. And he had morphine, he was in hospital, and he had morphine every four hours. So for three hours, he was fine and could talk to his family and was himself. And for one hour, because the morphine effect ran out after three hours, he would have an hour of complete agony, so much so that he would be crying, screaming, begging for the next dose of morphine. And the whole thing was so undignified and so painful to watch. And you just kept thinking you would not do this to a dog. So that's what got me into it. And it took him months to die, and all the time he wanted to. And the hospital, because that's what they're trained to do, kept reviving him, he'd get pneumonia, they'd give him antibiotics, he'd get a bit better, they would never give him enough morphine. And I think what's behind that, though I don't know whether Sarah would agree with me, but I think a lot of the restriction of morphine is because doctors are so afraid of being accused of manslaughter, because as you know, it's not legal to kill people, and it's not legal to help people die. It's perfectly legal to commit suicide, but you have to do it by yourself can't
0: get anyone to help because they might go to jail. So Prue, do you think that there is a big divide here between people who have been close to people dying, and I have on a number of occasions, and so seen what you're describing, possibly not as profoundly traumatic as what you're describing, but I've seen what happens to people and the way in which people can lose dignity and can be in pain, and that point you reach when all that really matters is relieving somebody of pain and trying to bring them some dignity. Do you think there's a big division between those people who have directly experienced that and those people who haven't in this debate?
1: I went to a House of Commons event that Sarah organised where supporters came and we all tried to persuade MPs. and It was very interesting because nearly all the supporters in that room had been relatives of people who had died. They'd either had a horrible death and they never wanted anybody else to have it, or they had been the illegal sisters taking people to Dignitas. And they thought that was dreadful too. That's a horrible death, frankly. You know, you might actually have an easy last few moments in the Dignitas hospital, but, you know, you have to get there and you're terminally ill and nobody wants to travel and spend, you know, ten twelve thousand 12,000 pounds to do it. You know, that's not a solution. And unfortunately, the current law is driving more people to try and go to Switzerland to die.
0: So Sarah, this podcast is focused in particular on big ideas for the kind of world we're moving into. So when I ask you the question that I ask everyone on this podcast, I guess I'm interested in why you think this particular moment is one which might kind of lead us to, as a nation, decide to do things differently. So let me ask you, Sarah Wharton, what is your big idea for the kind of new era that we're moving into once COVID passes?
2: Well, I think the pandemic has affected every aspect of our lives. And we point out in the book that as a society, we've had a real jolt to the system. Our lives have changed almost overnight, and we're moving forward into an uncertain future, wanting some honest information about what's going to happen and how to regain control. And in Last Rights, we actually argue that that's what dying people experience when they're given a life-changing diagnosis. I think what COVID's done has made us all confront our own mortality. Death and dying is everybody's business now. It's not just the preserve of hospices or palliative care doctors. We all have a stake in this debate. And what our big idea is really is around democratising dying. We say the current system makes gods of doctors and keeps patients as supplicants, and we need to change that. And one of the ways we change that is by legalising assisted dying.
0: And do you think that the experience that people had during the pandemic, those people who have died, because I still don't think in a way we fully understand that COVID itself can lead to a pretty grim death. Do you think that that has changed or influenced this debate at all?
2: Well, we've spoken to a lot of people who don't want to get admitted to hospital if they get COVID. So Diana Melly is a good example, actually. So she was on any questions at the beginning of lockdown. And she said that she had a living will and a do not resuscitate order and that she was very clear that if she did get it, she had underlying health problems, then she doesn't want to go into hospital. She was called brave by the panellists on any questions. She said she was just being sensible. I think, you know, we've had a lot of debate around blanket do not resuscitate orders and decisions about when somebody should be admitted to intensive care. But really, it's the quality of the communication that's upset people, not the principle that there will come a time to think about how you want to die. And we're saying that time is now.
0: So Prue, when one looks at the arguments against assisted dying, there are various kinds, aren't there? Let's go through them, because they are addressed in the book, of course. There's a religious stroke ethical argument, and we'll come on to that. There's a kind of thin end of the wedge kind of argument. And we'll come on to that. And then there's a third, a kind of muddling through argument. So let's take those in turn. Let's start with the religious argument. It is interesting to me that Christian organisations have been very powerful opponents of assisted dying, because they just think that it is immoral. It is against God's teaching for anybody to be involved in taking a life, because that is, in a sense, God's life to be taken. Do you think that, in a sense... One just has to accept that for some Christians, assisted dying will never, ever be something which they consider to be moral? Or do you think that, in a sense, one needs to take on that ethical argument and say that there are other ethical, other even religiously underpinned principles which should be put in the balance against the idea that it is wrong to take someone's life, even with their consent?
1: Well, I think sort of both, in a way. I mean, I was very impressed with Archbishop Carey who told me that the reason that he had changed his mind, he had been very opposed to a sister dying. But he now is really in favor of it. I think he had some personal experience of, you know, family member dying or something. And he just felt that God could not, for him, he did not believe that God would want to see such suffering. It was as simple as that. So, I mean, some people will change when they are closer to death or because family members are dying or something, some religious people will change their minds. But others, I think, will always be opposed. And that's fine. I mean, what we're asking for is choice, not mandatory. We're not asking people to be killed because that would be cheaper for society or because it would be easier to organize. We want people to be able to choose. And interestingly, very few people will choose If they're comfortable and they know that they can be helped to die if things get desperate, they're more relaxed about it. I think that the current law tends to make people go off to dignitas before they need to, because you have to be healthy enough to get there and so on. I don't think Christians should worry. Nobody is going to make anybody die.
0: Well, that takes us then to the second argument, Sarah, which is the kind of thin end of the wedge argument, which I think has got two different elements to it. One is... Well, once you start allowing people who are terminally ill and close to death to make this choice, then why don't you inevitably have to allow people who are, in one way or another, simply tired of life, unhappy, with life or in pain? And this, of course, is what has happened in some countries, like the Netherlands, for example. And then the other part of this kind of thin end of the wedge argument is, Well, once you allow people to make this choice, it will become a social expectation and older people who would rather have a few more days, a few more weeks will feel that they kind of need to ask for assisted dying because they don't want to be a burden on their family, on society and the NHS
2: proves absolutely right that having the option to die when you've got a terminal illness actually increases people's life expectancy. They don't go to Switzerland. 40% of people in the US who have the prescription don't use it. Just knowing it's an option is enough. And I think that we really need to understand that wanting to control the manner and timing of your death shouldn't be equated with a wish to die. We've got a completely different example of that. So a 9-11 Over 200 people jumped from the Twin Towers as they burned. And medical examiners were absolutely clear that wasn't suicide. Their cause of death was recorded as homicide from terrorism. You know, I'm sure the jumpers would have preferred to live if that was an option. What people are doing Is they're shortening a death, they're not shortening a life. On your point, Matthew, around, well, slippery slope really is the way these arguments are termed. And you have to look at the evidence from overseas to see whether that's really true, whether that hypothetical fear is proven. 150 million people have access to these laws now throughout the world. And the evidence shows that these laws do not. Expand The laws that you referred to in the Netherlands and Belgium were always based on a wider criterion than terminal illness. They were based on the criterion of unbearable suffering. So that does bring in issues of disability, dementia, mental illness. That's not the law that Dignity in Dying is calling for. We're calling for a law that's in the U.S., that's in Australia now and probably as of next month will be in New Zealand, which is terminal illness and mental competence. But even in Canada, again, has assisted dying lawful throughout that entire country. The laws were based originally on a Supreme Court legal case where unbearable suffering was the criterion. So the laws were always going to be based on that, on that particular perspective. I think this is really around letting dying people speak for themselves. I mean, ultimately, the best judges of the quality of people's deaths are people themselves, you know, not doctors, not lawyers, not legislators. And we need to listen to what dying people are telling us.
0: So Prue, let's go to the final argument, which is the kind of muddling through argument. And I tend to be reasonably fond of muddling through arguments, partly because I think that when government pulls big levers, changes laws, there's often all sorts of unintended consequences. So the muddling through argument says, look, come on, we all know that doctors enable this to happen. They use sedation. People can just choose to stop eating or drinking. You know, there are ways in which this happens. Why can't we just accept that you know, what happens in hospices, what happens in hospitals is that doctors in the end do enable people to end their lives slightly earlier to avoid this. Why do we need a law with all the attendant dangers? Why can't we carry on in our British way muddling through?
1: Well, I'm not sure that I have the evidence to properly answer you. But my impression is that certainly in my Parents' Day, that was exactly what happened. The doctor said, I think your brother or your father or something is in real pain. I will just give him enough morphine to make him feel really easy. But you do realize that, you know, he may die. You know, they would sort of talk around it, but the message would be perfectly clear. And people accepted that. And most family doctors did it. Today, because there is such a sort of strong pro life movement, it's too scary for doctors to do that. What doctor wants to be suspended for six months while he's investigated, even if he's perfectly innocent because he has genuinely given them medicine in order to alleviate suffering and not with the intention of killing, he can give you a bit more morphine. But will he? Because somebody might have him suspended. And then, you know, he'll come back into his job and all the end of it. But his reputation is ruined. His life is upset. So, you know, I've seen consultants hide. What would be really interesting to see is when do consultants do their tours in a ward? Generally, just after they've been given their drugs. And that is when the patients are cheerful and, yes, doctor, I'm fine. I feel great. They should do their ward rounds when the patients are waiting for their drugs.
0: On the issue of doctors, Sarah, one of the kind of constituencies that is respected and rightly respected and doesn't agree with you is the constituency of palliative care doctors themselves. Now, in the book, you suggest that that might be something that is starting to shift. But why is it listening to this debate? I don't need convincing. I'm not going to pretend that I'm impartial in this. I agree with your view. But I guess if I was watching a debate, If I saw a palliative care doctor say, no, this is wrong, this is unnecessary, this is dangerous, I think I would sit up and take notice. So tell us, Sarah, why it is that palliative care doctors, on the whole, do not support assisted dying.
2: Are two reasons. First of all, they often tend to be religious and surveys show that there is a lot more religion in palliative care than in other specialties. And I think that comes from the founder of palliative care, Dame Cicely Saunders, who was an evangelical Christian. And this kind of goes to the second point, really, which is around the culture of palliative care is extraordinarily opposed to assisted dying. They absolutely toxify the issue and don't want it discussed. So there was an article by five palliative care consultants in the British Medical Journal last year, and they remained anonymous. They said specifically that if they were clear that they did think this should be something that was in the palliative care doctor's toolbox, then their careers would suffer as a result. So I think that the whole culture of palliative care tends against this, and you have to be a very brave palliative care specialists to go against that. And I also think there is a lot of religion in the specialty. I mean, other specialties that also deal with dying people like intensivists show much more support for assisted dying. And you've got to look at doctors in the whole. So they are moving in the UK. So the Royal College of Physicians moved to neutrality last year. The Royal College of GPs surveyed this year, and it showed a plummeting of opposition to assisted dying from 77 to 46 percent the BMA also have surveyed their members and had a huge turnout of 30,000 members that survey is due to be launched in autumn but I think you know it's not just doctors that are saying the status quo doesn't work police and crime commissioners are saying that it isn't working and members of parliament in much more numbers too now are saying that the status quo causes huge cruelty to people and also doesn't protect them. Can I come in here? Matthew, I just want to say that I'm
1: really anxious that we should improve palliative care. I mean, these two things are not mutually exclusive. Palliative care could be very much better, and that could prolong people's lives and maybe save people's lives. And I think Dignity is Dying is very keen to work with. Is it compassion in dying? Is that the other
2: Yes, sister charity, Compassion in Dying, provides people with advice and information on their current legal rights. And we have very strong links with the end-of-life care sector and proves absolutely right. This isn't an either and or. This is just a both and.
0: And as I understand it, in some of the countries where they have passed assisted dying legislation, they have at the same time made further investment in palliative care, partly to kind of underline the point that you're both making. Now, Sarah, one of the elements of your book is this kind of notion that runs through. And by the way, we should mention your co-author, Lloyd Riley. But one of the things that runs through your book is the kind of sense that assisted dying is an inevitable reform, which will be seen after it has been enacted as being as inevitable as other advances that have been made, for example, in relation to women getting the vote or in terms of equality legislation or the liberation of the LGBT community. But do you think that you're just about to win this battle? And in telling me how good you think the prospects are of changing the law, of course, Keir Starmer is a very interesting figure in this. I didn't realise till I read your book that he's been actually featured in this debate quite a lot. And so you have, I think, a leader of the opposition who understands these issues and, and presumably is willing to be a supporter.
2: Yes, Keir is a supporter. He spoke very powerfully in support of the Maris Bill five years ago. I do think that the stars are aligning.
0: And of course, when he was director of public prosecutions, he kind of softened the law in terms of the advice he gave about who should be subject to He provided
2: to greater clarity because of a legal case that Dignity and Dying took, the Debbie Purdy case, which asked for clarification on the issues that the director of public prosecutions took into account when deciding whether to prosecute somebody. We forced him to publish a policy which you know has factors for and factors against and clarifies that compassionate assisters are unlikely to be prosecuted prosecuted, whereas malicious encouragers are. It gave more of a sense that you're unlikely to be prosecuted if you compassionately assist somebody, but it's not changed the ground, really. So you get somebody like Mavis Eccleston, who helped her husband, Dennis, who had end-stage bowel cancer, take his own life. And Mavis was charged with murder and manslaughter by the Crown Prosecution Service and only was acquitted by a jury after an 18-month trial. And the CPS were very clear that they had the evidence to prosecute her and it was in the public interest to do so. And if there was another case like that they would do so again. They said the courts were not the place to look at the issues around assisted dying. I mean, you asked me about progressive liberal reforms, Matthew, and I absolutely agree that this is a similar campaign where people have got to fight against a stubborn establishment, which refuses to listen or or even acknowledge their lived experience. But also, social reform comes from public pressure, And we have the public on our side, as well as the leader of the opposition, as well as actually the prime minister is philosophically supportive of this.
0: So what are you waiting for, Sarah? Does it require an MP to win the private member's ballot in order to get this progressed? Or is there any chance that government itself will do it?
2: We're looking at both. What we, we're calling for is a public inquiry. I mean, there's been an inquiry announced in the Republic of Ireland. So a member of their parliament has taken a private member's bill and the government there has said that they want an inquiry that will have various hearings and may end up in a referendum similar to their repeal, the eighth referendum on abortion. In Australia, there was also an inquiry to look at end of life care. And that's what we're calling for here is a broader end of life care. Care inquiry that looks at the benefits of end of life care, palliative care, and the limits of it, looks at funding for hospices, there should be government funding for hospices, and looks in the round at what this blanket ban is really doing to us.
0: Can I just ask, it's very interesting you mentioned that because the bit you've missed out in the kind of Irish process around the constitutional referendum was a citizens' assembly. You say in the book that 80% of the public support assisted dying would a good transitional demand, as it were, be for a deliberative assembly around assisted dying, where I guess you could be reasonably confident that you might get the outcome that you wanted, but where it would be the public themselves who had deliberated upon this, which might add legitimacy and give politicians the cover to be a bit braver?
2: I think that would be perfectly fine. I think a citizens assembly, a public inquiry, we need some sort of Wolfenden moment, basically, where It's MPs that need the courage to do this. It's members of Parliament who really need to understand the evidence on our side of the argument. I mean, back in 2015, they voted two to one against legalising assisted dying. The numbers are reaching parity now, but you're right, we also do need a mechanism to change the law. We will try and change the law in Scotland. I mean, Scotland doesn't have a private member's ballot. I wouldn't be surprised if they legalise assisted dying first in Holyrood.
0: So Prue, I want to turn to you just at the end of our conversation to, I guess, present challenges to the thesis. I've been very clear that I'm supportive of it. But I guess the first is, you know, take the logic of it. Take the logic of Sarah's argument that this is about autonomy. It's about reducing suffering. It's about choice. If that is the case, then... (laughs) Isn't it inevitable that if you accept that principle, that you will end up saying that it doesn't just apply to people who are terminally ill? I think in the book, you refer to the case of Paul Briggs, who was a former police officer who became extremely disabled as a consequence of an an accident. Now, he wasn't terminally ill in the sense that he could have been kept on life support for a very long time. It's very clear that he didn't want to be. And in the end, he did, through a legal process, win the right to move to palliative care rather than being kept alive indefinitely. So I guess my question to you proves, and I'm not arguing against this necessarily, but if you accept the principle people should have autonomy, if you accept the principle that people shouldn't have needless suffering, if there are people who aren't terminally ill, who find life completely unbearable, and I think in the Netherlands recently we saw somebody in their 30s who suffered from profound psychiatric issues, being able to choose assisted dying. Isn't that inevitably, what comes once you accept this principle?
1: I don't think so. I mean, I don't think Oregon, who were sort of pioneers in this, have widened their brief. But I mean, if you're asking me personally, I would be in favour of a wider definition, and certainly a longer period, because we are saying three months, if you're going to die, you're expected to die within three months, you qualify. Well, you could have six months of absolute horror and so on. But what I do accept is that if the law is once there, it may be changed in twenty years time. But evidence is that most countries don't widen the sort of mouse run into a, you know, rat tunnel. <laughs> That's a rather bad way of putting it.
0: Well, I absolutely get that, but I'm gonna turn the question to you, Sarah, because it's particularly in relation to the book. You know, it's particularly in relation to the kind of philosophical, ethical case that you make in the book. And I guess I want to ask you, people who might say to you, okay, I understand, but pragmatically, you're asking for a very specific change in the law, like the situation in Oregon, extremely circumscribed. But given the principles that you outline, isn't it inevitable, Sarah, that once you've won this battle, and the law has been changed, that you personally will then campaign for further steps going towards the much more kind of liberal and expansive scope for assisted dying that exists, for example, in countries like Belgium and the Netherlands?
2: No, what I'm asking for is a new vision of end of life care, where people are in control of their own fates. So it's what dying people want that counts. You know, we know controls is a fundamental part of well-being. But at the moment, people are having to fight against a paternalistic medical culture to wrestle control away from doctors. What I'm arguing in the book is that they need the building blocks of control. And this is what I'd like to see. So that doctors do have those honest conversations with people about what the future holds so people can make informed decisions about their treatment and care. I think that feeling in control... Of your death should actually be treated like a symptom so if you don't feel in control of it then if someone presented with fever or nausea then a doctor would treat that i think that that would enable light to be shone on those gray areas in end-of-life care that you referred to earlier Matthew around starving and dehydrating yourself to death and the fudge of double effect now part of that control has to be the choice of accelerating your death within a safeguarded system But that is the change that I want to see. That is democratising dying, where patients have control of it. And no, personally, I wouldn't campaign for a broader law, and I don't think it necessarily comes. And I think the evidence from overseas that proves absolutely right, it shows it hasn't shifted. What the evidence also shows is the status quo is completely unsustainable and indefensible as well.
0: Well, on that point, I would just say from my own perspective that for those who haven't read it, I'd encourage people to read Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, which argues that in a sense, our awareness of death and our fear of death casts a shadow over the whole of our lives and leads in various kinds of ways to kind of mania. And I think Becker has a strong argument. I think that anything that reduces our fear of death, anything that enables us to face up to it more squarely, is something which will enhance the quality of our lives. So I think there's an even kind of broader argument here, but this has been a fascinating conversation. Last rights is a short, powerful read for anybody who needs further convincing of these arguments. Sarah Wooden, Prue thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, thank
2: you.
0: That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future, but we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please tell someone about it and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.